we are going to talk play to learn or learn to play. Um, yeah, I'm a little bit tired. I might cry. <laughs> just, we're just going to ignore it. We're going to power through. Okay, today we are going to talk about um, a subject very dear to my heart. Um, we're going to talk about educational games. So, digital learning games promised a bright future for engaging children and young people. Education through play is kind of a natural process, um, but have digital games really delivered on the promise that we were, we were kind of evangelizing about, about 10 years ago? Our esteemed panel of four people, you'll notice there's a problem with this, um, are gonna talk through their amazing experiences. So first we've got Dr. Carlton Reeve, who's head of media and design technology at Bradford University. Then we've got Amelia McKenzie, who's digital learning producer at the Science Museum. Dan Tucker, who's currently got the best job title in the uh -huh. world. He's curator of alternate realities at DocFest. Score. And then also, next to Dan, we have Abby Araya, producer and co-founder of Sandbox. He's currently doing a talk in another room and will be joining us halfway through. So when he sneaks in, don't say anything. Um, okay, so we are gonna start with um, Dr. Carlton Reeve. Thanks, Anne. So good morning, my name's Carlton Reeve. Um, I'm the head of media design and technology at Bradford University. Um, and uh, could I have the opening slide up, please? Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry, thank you. <clears throat> um, and, uh, but I am a relatively new back into academia. I did have a life before that. Uh, and Nick has asked me if I'll just put learning games into a bit of context this morning. Um, so in my earlier life, I was a commissioner on a project that some of you may be familiar with, BBC Jam. Can you just raise your hand if you still bear the scars of BBC Jam? Oh, there's so many of us. I think we should still have a therapy group. Um, <laughs> Jam was closed down 10 years ago, almost to the month, uh, which for many of us was sort of a catastrophic um, uh, end to what was a project that had enormous potential. For those of you that aren't familiar with BBC Jam, it was a 150 million pound investment by the BBC to put half of the national curriculum online free for school kids. Um, after about 90 million pounds had been spent, <clears throat> the commercial software business put in a complaint to Europe saying that if the BBC gave away this content for free, there'd be no market left for them. And uh, with a disgusting lack of backbone, the BBC Trust pulled the plug on the project, putting many of uh, the independent e-learning sector into bankruptcy and damaging, I would argue, the e-learning e market and the games learning market um, in the UK in a very, very significant way. So Axon was one of the games that we produced 10 years ago at the BBC. It had a budget of one and a half million pounds. It had two hours worth of broadcast quality story video in it um, and about three hours worth of interactive content arranged over about 30 different game challenges all set in this overarching narrative that you'll have got some view of uh, in the trailer that I just showed you. Um, so it still breaks my heart that content that is that rich and had that much uh, love and attention paid to it never got to saw the light of day. And actually in the, in the aftermath of, the, of the, uh, uh, the shelving of BBC Jam, we saw the main broadcasters pull back Channel 4, for a while, pursued learning games with mixed success, um, but even they now have pulled out of it. And, uh, and it was sort of with some interest and perhaps relief this week that, like you, I heard the BBC, children's BBC announcement about their investment in going digital. Um, now, the loss of those big budgets has had a massive impact on the type and quality and range of learning games that we see in the UK. Um, and, of course, not only has the budget reduced, which has meant that the games are much smaller and less ambitious in the main, um, we're also in a situation where kids are in a much more crowded marketplace. Ten years ago, uh, most kids didn't have mobile phones or tablets. Now, of course, they're ubiquitous. And children are flooded with high-quality casual games. 
which means that for most kids, playing an educational game is not something that they would do by choice. Um, and actually, it's something that rarely teachers uh, will use by choice. Because I don't know about you, but one of the consequences of the smaller budgets um, is smaller, less ambitious games. But there is another problem that I think we face with educational games. Um, and I'm delighted that we'll see some exceptions to these problems with the, with the other people on the panel. But unfortunately, most educational games, as far as I can tell, <coughs> are neither really educational, nor are they anything like a game. Um, there, does seem to, there does seem to seem that many educational games are created by people who have never played a game in their life. They don't contain many of the fundamental game mechanics that make games so engaging. You can't fail. Who plays a game where you can't fail? What's the point? Um, uh, there's very little feedback. There's no sort of increasing difficulty. And actually, there's no meaningful interaction in those games either. Fundamental flaws that mean that these activities, um, whilst they're called games, are nothing like the playable experiences that our young people enjoy in their free time. Um, and, uh, and it's definitely not, my, um, definitely not my place to point out examples of these games. I'm sure that we could identify them very quickly. Um, but it's not, my, it's not my place to do that today. But I do think that many things that are labeled educational games, just because you label something a game doesn't make it a game. Just, just because you label something educational doesn't mean that anyone learns from it. Um, and I do think one of the major challenges for us as game producers is to create playable experiences, genuinely playable experiences, that actually offer learning. But I, but I am still filled with hope because games, of course, are ideal learning environments. Good games teach you how to play the game without any external instruction, and they, they treat it in a way that if you fail, it's not something that you throw away. You get back in and do it again. And not only do you do it again, you invest time and effort into it, and you fail repeatedly. Um, <clears throat> Non-game players often describe games as fun. Now, my experience of games actually is they're not characterized by fun. Most of my gameplay is characterized by grinding, irritating hard work that makes me want to throw my console across the, across the room. But the great thing about games is they encourage you to keep going, something that most educational experiences, brutally, don't. And that's why I think games have enormous amount to offer. So I think in the same way that we are still faced with those challenges of integrating um, game mechanics into learning games, games still provide those same opportunities for really transformational learning. And I would argue that games are particularly good for three things. <clears throat> I think good games are a great catalyst for other activity. They're a great hook to engage young people. They're a great stimulant to make them think about certain subjects. And you can see that this is the way that um, off-the-shelf games have been using classrooms across the country for years. They've taken commercial games, the kids have played them in class, and off the back of that, there's been some maths activity, or some English activity, or some geography, or some history activity. And commercial off-the-shelf games, because they're polished and they have big budgets, are a great springboard for other activities. And I think there's great opportunities for us there. Secondly, games are great at building confidence. A game is a great place to fail. It's got no material consequence. If you fail, if you screw up, it doesn't matter. You get back up, you do it again. It's a great way of practicing. And where games simulate uh, systems, whether they are hard systems like um, how to fly an airplane in a flight sim, or soft systems about how to interact with people in terms of negotiation or relationships, games can be a great way of just building confidence and allowing young people to try things out and experiment in a way that can transfer into real life but never really damages real life. And then finally, of course, games offer us an unprecedented way of collaborating. Increasingly, with network games and um, safety issues notwithstanding, they do offer us this brilliant chance for people to work together in ways that we've never seen before. We've seen uh, the Cancer Research Institutes create uh, shoot-em-up games, space shoot-em-up games, which are actually decoding breast cancer uh, scan details. There are great ways of games um, 
drawing on what's described as the cognitive surplus of lots of people playing simultaneously. And I think there's all sorts of opportunities for us in, in learning games to capitalize on that opportunity to work together in teams, often in competition, which is another thing most educational games don't include, um, but to work together, to learn together. Um, so I just wanted to give a very, very brief overview of that. And, and I'm sure that um, Amelia and Dan and uh, will show you good examples of how we can achieve those things in learning games. But that's all I'm gonna say at the moment. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I have a, I have so many questions. I have um, a question in regard to funding, which seems incredibly pertinent. Um, why do you think there's been such a, a long gap in time between funding initiatives like BBC Jam and the funding initiative that we learned about yesterday, or the day before yesterday? Um, do you think the way that JAM ended affected how the BBC felt, affected Channel 4, or do you think that it's a broader problem? There's no question that the end of JAM destroyed the confidence across the industry. Um, people became much more risk-averse. The BBC retrenched um, and drew back, and, um, and it was only fairly recently with new initiatives um, where the BBC's become more adventurous. But actually, and I, and I know because I was a, a commissioner on BBC Jam, so I kind of was privy to a lot of conversations about the consequences of it. Um, there was a sense inside the BBC where we can't afford to spend £90 million on work that's then going to be challenged by the commercial sector and not be defended and then pulled. Um, and so there was, there was a complete... Uh, just an aversion to that sort of risk. Um, but I'm going to say something that I think uh, might be sort of fairly difficult to hear for many of us. Um, the other problem, of course, is that a lot of the research that's been done about learning games suggests that games are no more effective than other kind of exciting interventions into the classroom that are much cheaper um, games are enormously expensive to create and if they're going to be no better than doing a piece of role play for example or going on a going on a field trip then who's going to invest that that money now I say that and the, and the research is at the time was was fairly comprehensive um, um, there is a real challenge with transferring what we learn inside games into the real world now, I don't think it's an insurmountable problem. I wouldn't be in my job if I thought it was. Um, but the death of JAM and, you know, and Channel 4's own initiatives um, meant that there wasn't the budget to prove that it could work because there simply wasn't the, the, the scale of, of uh, productivity or the scale of ambition to do more. Um, so I, th so I think it's twofold. Do you think it's the, the lack of research into the impact or the lack of ability to define the impact because it costs so much in the first place and then it never saw the light of day? Um, well, I would love to have seen JAM launch and see the effect it had on, on the educational standards and learning across the UK. I'm sure it would have made a massive impact. Um, the, the thing is, with, with educational games, teachers are only going to use them if they make their lives better and if they improve the learning of the children. And um, uh, because, t because teachers are so overwhelmed with kind of constant new legislation and guidelines and scrutiny, they want things that make lives better. And so, the, so games are rarely introduced into classrooms, and, and, and when they are, if those games don't deliver anything extra than a teacher could have delivered by standing up and talking or using some other activity, they're simply not going to be used. One, two. No, you can't. Can I add something, which is that um, uh, I feel like history repeated itself with BBC I Wonder, which is something I worked on for about three years. So on a smaller scale, from you know, 2012, 13 onwards, along came I Wonder, which is about a slightly older market, but perhaps 
also included school children in secondary school. And um, there was a palpable fear, and there, you know, the BBC Jam thing was mentioned quite a lot. There was a palpable fear that it would fail. And it, it was quite hamstrung by that kind of constant uh, fear. And then, of course, you've got the kind of Machiavellian corridors of the BBC to negotiate. Um, but there was a lack of confidence there, and there was also a lack of understanding. So um, aside from the efficacy of interactive learning, you also need to either have expertise or you need to have trust in the people who are making the content and making um, the interactive mechanisms to deliver learning. And if you, if you don't have the expertise or the trust, then set, setting out on that kind of enterprise is already doomed to fail. Yay. Um, <laughs> but, but before, We're all but, doomed. But before, we, before we get really depressed about it, actually, you know, I'm still committed and I still believe in the potential of games to engage in an unprecedented way. Yeah. It's just I think we've been slightly misdirected in the past about where our energies are like. Yeah. I still think games are amazing. You know, anybody that's seen a child play Minecraft, mm. you will know how transformational that experience can be. You know, my kid has learnt, uh, my youngest son, Jacob, has learnt how to program using Minecraft. Mm. You know, it's absolutely astonishing. And he's done it entirely off his own back. Games are amazing. Yeah. Uh, and they have enormous potential. Let's not get, let's not, uh, get too yeah. depressed about so, the history. Apologies. To lead into that, a brilliant example of games being used um, for educational purposes in the most amazing way is at the Science Museum. So would you like to tell us about your work, Amelia? Um, so, good morning, my name's Amelia. I work at the Science Museum in London. I work in the learning team and I work on digital projects, so games and websites and so on. Um, I previously worked at the British Museum and before that I was agency side, um, making kind of informal learning games for people like CBBC and um, the culture sector. So, um, I'm going to share some case studies from the Science Museum's learning games archive. Um, just to note that these are actually from before my time, so I've um, referred to post-project evaluations to give you a kind of summary as to what's worked and what hasn't. Um, and I'm also going to mention a game I worked on at the British Museum. Um, if any of these pique your interest, um, they're all currently still available on the Science Museum site. So I'm just going to begin with um, looking into the past before I look um, into the future, into what we've got in the pipeline. So Launch Ball, um, probably the most successful game ever created by the Science Museum, and, and I think it's about 10 years old now. Um, I think at the time, this really challenged the idea that science games needed to be dull and boring. So um, you basically got this ball, and you're trying to get it to the goal. The game's actually about physics. So it explores the concepts of forces, motion, light, and magnetism. Um, I think what's really successful about this game is that um, as a player, you actually have to understand how these concepts work and apply them within the game itself in order to succeed. Um, and like Carlton said, you're constantly experimenting. The game allows you to fail repeatedly. Um, and in so doing, I think you're really picking up um, a lot about physics. Um, this game has also got a sandbox element. So once you feel confident with those concepts, um, you can build your own levels and share them with your friends. Next up is Thingdom, which is a secondary science game about genetics. Um, so it's a little bit like a sophisticated Tamagotchi game. You've got these creatures called things, and you select and breed them, and you also care for them. Um, and you're aiming to bring out specific um, characteristics through the concept of inheritance. Um, it really promotes active learning, and I think um, evaluation has shown it's, it's quite robust from a learning point of view. Um, I think perhaps where it falls down is that there's just a lot of information inside the game. There's quite a lot of text. Um, and I think players found that this uh, interrupted the gameplay. Futurecade um, is it's something a little bit different. So it's a suite of four arcade-style games. Um, so these take on contemporary science topics like antibiotic resistance um, and space junk. And these aren't actually designed to necessarily teach you a lot about these topics. They're designed to be a kind of conversation starter for use in the classroom um, for secondary. So um, in evaluations, I think players found these games really enjoyable and addictive, but they didn't all necessarily realize that they contain real information about real life science. 
Transmission is a game which came out in 2014 um, alongside the New Information Age Gallery. Um, so it's all about networks broadcasting information across networks. Um, it looks and it sounds really beautiful and it was designed for a real gamer audience, um, so teenagers and adults, um, along the principle um, fun first, education second. So it's really successful, um, a lot of downloads. Um, however, um, with this game, unlike with Launchable, you don't really need to understand the concepts of um, of the flow of information in order to complete the levels. Um, and finally, um, in terms of these online games, um, this is Rugged Rovers, which is an engineering game. So you're challenged to create a space rover which will jump over canyons um, on Mars and go as far as possible. So um, this game is great because you're basically thinking like an engineer and you're, you're designing your own space rover, testing it out, making changes, um, doing it again and again. Um, so this was downloadable as an app, um, and you can also play the game on a big screen in the um, Engineer Your Future gallery in the museum, which kind of bridges me quite nicely to, um, to this project, which is an on-gallery um, digital product um, I worked on at the British Museum. So it's called Adventure Cards. And unlike a lot of the... The, the other games I just mentioned, this is about opening up the objects in the museum's collection to families, so getting them to engage with the objects themselves. So in the game, um, players take it in turns to be the game master, and they challenge each other to, um, to like, diverse challenges based on specific objects. So you might be challenged to, um, to like, pose like a statue um, or answer trivia questions about uh, feudal Japan. Um, so this game is really about the museum's collection. It's not about the device itself. It's a heads-up experience, and it's also encouraged, encouraging social interaction. So it's a very speedy snapshot. Um, I'm going to um, yeah, look, look into the future and um, talk about a couple of projects I've got in the pipeline. So um, we're working on an, uh, an on-site, on-gallery app. Um, at the Science Museum, um, which, unlike the British Museum's app, is a lot more open-ended. Um, it's also designed to get families and school groups to explore the objects in the collection, because this is something they really struggle with. Just load, this room is full, full of objects. Um, so this one's a lot more open-ended, so um, you'll be challenged to find things in the room. So potentially, you know, find something that you have at home, or can you find something in the room that's blue, or something that's dangerous? And we really want to invite groups to feel more confident with exploring the collection and making personal connections with it. And finally, um, Science Capital. This is, um, I think, a really exciting project. So we're in an R&D phase at the moment uh, to create something new based on the principles of Science Capital. Um, and Science Capital is the outcome of a, a five-year research project with King's College in London. So we are planning to design a digital product um, which will ignite curiosity amongst young people and get them to see the application of science to everyday life and to make a personal connection with science. So unlike a lot of the other games I just mentioned, which are about specific scientific concepts like physics or engineering, um, this is a lot more high level. It's actually about changing people's attitudes to science itself. So, um, so yeah, watch this space. Um, please follow me and the Science Museum learning team on Twitter to um, yeah, stay across how these projects develop. That's brilliant, thank you. Amelia, I have a question about um, how you feel about the, the difference of experience between um, the browser-based games and the app on digital space games and the physical in-venue games. So the Explore game looks excellent. We worked on a project with a local museum that was very similar. Um, and just um, from looking back at um, the research that you've done, with how users have responded. Is there a palpable difference between the digital game and the, the real-world physical experience games? Okay, I'll, um, there is a big difference. Uh, if I speak more about the, the kind of more gallery explorer type apps, um, this is, I mean, 
the bottom line is it's, it's not about the screen. Um, it, it's, it's a challenge because um, these games need to be about actually engaging with the spaces and with the objects and potentially with the other people that you're visiting the museum with. Um, so it's about like facilitating this experience and the social interaction. Um, but I think the challenge is to create something really beautiful and engaging as well that's still kind of like, juicy and fun and playable, yeah. which isn't just about being heads down in the screen. Yeah. So that's the main difference. And um, I think also just anything on gallery, whether it's a touch screen in a, in a gallery or um, like a bring your own device app or a hired, a hired thing, um, just needs to be like, you just need to get the concept straight away and be in there. Yeah. Um, unlike online where you can do something a lot more sustained. Yeah. I think the, the project that we worked on, um, it had a lot of narrative, um, and it, it did the opposite of what you just said, so I think something, <laughs> something that is, Sorry. it was a beautiful thing, it was so good, um, but it, it, it kind of, it failed to do the job of helping the visitor visit, which was what it was supposed to do. Right, next we have, oh, it's Abby, Abby, hi. You'd sneak in, it'd be fine, nobody noticed. Um, next we have uh, Dan Tucker, who's gonna talk us through some of the different kinds of technology you can use for digital education games. Sure. Hello. Um, so my name is Dan Tucker, and I have this ridiculous job title that I'm secretly very proud of, Curator of Alternate Realities, which means that I run the interactive and immersive program within Sheffield DocFest, which is the other festival in Sheffield, which happened about three weeks ago. It's a big documentary festival, 25 years um, old next year. And we present interactive and immersive story to um, the festival audience, but also the public. And within that, we feature uh, learning games and learning experiences and, and, and playful experiences. Very interesting to hear what the, the, the two speakers have said thus far. Um, I'm going to be talking about interactive narratives, which is a wibbly-wobbly place which stretches the limits of what we consider games and like whether um, it's okay to have games, whether you do or do not fail or whether you, you learn something stealthily but don't have kind of precise, tidy game mechanics. And also, um, hearing what Amelia was saying about being synchronous, your content being synchronous with the environment is very important. We present our content in a gallery space as art and we... Um, consider the makers artists and we try to create a journey like you were describing for the for the visitors to Docfest to go through the venue, interact with each other, interact with the environment and interact um, with the pieces. But I'm going to move on. Um, I, I briefly mentioned I wonder, I didn't mean to be too doom and gloom, but um, <laughs> it was a great, a great period of my life and um, I'm going to talk about two projects I made there when I was the digital editor of history, both which are interactive narrative pieces. The first is Our World War. So I grew up loving those choose-your-own-adventure books, and I fell in love with um, The Walking Dead app and a game called um, The Last of Us. And I was asked to come in and make an interactive episode of a BBC Three drama called Our World War. So there was a, a BBC drama for BBC Three, and we were asked to make this interactive episode, and we focused on the, uh, a real-life situation of um, a small company of men in, in the Battle of Highwood during the Somme. And we created an interactive drama where you would be able to choose uh, for the main protagonist what would happen next. But we had feedback loops, as described by Carlton, and we had feedback loops in which you would learn whether your answers were the optimal or the worst potential um, decision. And then within it, you'll have just seen um, a few of those screens. Um, we had a kind of score. So we, we got a bit of flack from the WW1 community about this. But actually, when you play the game, it's very sensitive. So you, you had to choose uh, in very difficult scenarios what to do. And you were being judged by your men on uh, your tactics. And then the effect of your decisions was also affecting their morale. And that would equate to a leadership score. And the whole thing borrows from kind of classic uh, first-person shooting games like Call of Duty in its aesthetic, but it also has this powerful message in which you learn that all the decisions are incredibly difficult and in fact there is no real way to win just like in war um, within I guess the game you can also unlock the backstory of the characters in these kind of motion comics that you'd have seen in that clip and then unbeknownst to you one of the characters is judging you the whole time this character called Payne and um, 
if he agrees with your decisions and his morale has been kept high, in the very last scene of the drama, he rushes out to help you. And if you don't, then he doesn't help you, he runs away. But either way, I'm afraid it's quite a, it ends quite badly. It's quite a sad story, the song. Um, but it was a really interesting project to make, and, and the learning uh, for this was very profound. So we, we did, um, when, it, when it first um, launched on the BBC3 website, we did a conversion of 30% of the television audience, and that is like in, it's, it's a rough metric, but it's insanely high. I mean, if you get like a, even like 1%, that's very good. So we had, it was promoted heavily, but we had a really good conversion of the television audience to this game. I think about 240,000 people saw it in total. Um, I'm going to move on to another project to do with, uh, I wonder, called Footballers United, also about World War I. And this was a drama again, but also a documentary, and we remixed the kind of idea of what a documentary drama would be. It had an um, interactive layer in which you could delve into the timeline of factual assets that we used to create it. And you could also sign in via Facebook, and it would personalize um, events during World War I to you and the community of people you know. So you can tell it was like, you know, powerful teen drama stuff. It was a bit like the Hollyoaks of, of World War I in Scotland in a way. But um, it was an amazing story, that, about how women um, who, who were left behind to work in the factories then started playing football and how it created this incredibly strong community of women. Um, I, I realize I'm probably going long, so I'm going to speed up. Okay. Um, what was interesting about that project was that we created this interactive timeline. So it's not a game, but it is playful. And you, you got to delve into how we made the documentary and um, discover facts about World War I. So there was some really uh, powerful learning involved. Okay, and then the next thing I'm going to move on to is Easter Rising Voice of a Rebel. Uh, this is a VR documentary I made for the BBC last year, uh, which first exhibited here at DocFest. I'm going to skip the trailer because I know I'm running over time. It's the story... Um, uh, of one man who lived through the Easter Rising, which is the only, the only kind of armed rebellion in the UK, um, because at that time Ireland was owned by the UK. And it's the story of William McNeve. We found out about the story because there was a cassette tape in someone's grandfather's attic that they found. No one had heard it for 30 years, and we turned it into a virtual reality documentary. That VR documentary, um, you become William McNeve and you step through history um, and then you are involved in the, um, in the charge on Moore Street in which uh, lots of young men die. And it's a story about being swept up in rebellion. Um, it has been to a lot of film festivals. In fact, it's been to more countries in the world now than I have been. And uh, we had two very powerful public partnerships. We had a partnership with the National Theatre where it was there for three months on four Oculus Rifts alongside the Plough and the Stars, a seminal play about the Easter Rising, and then at the Imperial War Museum. And we also showed it to a lot of school children at events like the Festival of Education. It was really, really, really well received. And um, I've just got a, a little bit of kind of qual data I'll just rattle through very quickly. So we had a, uh, a, an offline survey on an iPad at the Imperial War Museum. 78% of people who did the experience wanted to do the survey. And the engagement with the subject was really high. Um, Fact retention through VR is really interesting because unlike watching a series of linear images pass in front of your face, it's an experience for your mind and sometimes your body. So a kind of muscle memory thing kicks in and you, um, and you remember facts like you remember objects walking around. Uh, there was certainly an increased kind of empathy and understanding of the protagonist's story. And what was really interesting was that people wanted to go on an onward journey. They wanted to immediately go in the, uh, to the area of the Imperial War Museum, which was about the Easter Rising. And there was a lot of increased interest and curiosity where people would then say, well, where can I find out more about the Easter Rising on the BBC's website? Um, so now I'm at DocFest, and that is an exhibition of more interactive narratives. Here's a piece called Blindfold, in which you, you go through an interrogation, and it's based on real stories from a prison in Iran, and you have to nod or shake your head to progress through. This is a piece called um, uh, First Impressions of the Guardian, where you, go, you become a baby and you see through the eyes of a baby. And uh, we've also started to show uh, interactive and immersive content in, in more communal spaces in domes, which I thought I should just mention. So I realize I'm running way over. Apologies. Uh, and that's me. Thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Dan. I'm going to ask your question later, Dan, because we're going to move straight on to introducing Abby. Um, who I haven't had a chance to meet yet. Hello. Hi. Um, and he is going to talk to us about Sandbox. Sure. Uh, should I just speak for a second? Okay. Um, so, uh, 
slightly different than uh, what uh, my predecessor said. So we are basically a company that is invested in a number of media properties, uh, but all of them focused around learning or education in some way or the other. Uh, focusing on the topic, I mean, we've got Fun Brain, which has got a collection of 150 plus games, um, e-books, and, uh, and uh, uh, storytelling, uh, storylines, and videos, basically, which of which actually 120 plus are games itself, and get used in about uh, about uh, uh, 200,000 plus schools uh, with a monthly usage of about two to three million kids uh, playing on Funbrain every month. Um, we've got uh, Adventure Pig again, a physics-based game uh, being downloaded about half a million times so far. Uh, Pop Tropica, which has reached its peak in 2007 on web with about uh, 8 million users. Now we roughly reach still about uh, 4 to 5 million users every month, uh, including both web and mobile. That's the property I'm going to talk a bit more about. Um, Calictic Hot Dog, which is uh, storytelling in an um, you know, interesting uh, way, again published uh, on books by Simon Schuster, a friend of ours, and so on. So you know, we at Sandbox trying to focus on making learning enjoyable. And to do that, what we are saying is it can be enjoyable if there's an element of uh, you know, gamification or gaming in it. Um, but also at the same time, what we are trying to do is to focus on moving away from the typical core subjects. We know they're important. Maths, science, and English, uh, or, or language is very important. But how do you really induce the real skills that are required now? especially when we were six, we didn't knew we would have jobs like social media when we are 26. I mean, I'm much older, but I'm just taking an example. And so we don't know the six years old today, what kind of job will they have? What we can do is to basically, and this is what our focus at Sandbox is to say, let's train them on things that are important for them when they grow up. So focusing more on the sort of uh, real critical skills like, you know, get real, uh, real life, uh, you know, real world life skills or adopt or solve or get going. And that's basically a framework that we as a company have adopted. And what we are doing is any piece of content that we create, curate or invest in, we look at it from that lens. We say, is it helping do one of these things, you know, or actually multiple of those things? If not, we are not going to be part of that, uh, you know. Um, and what Poptropica is basically a, uh, the island-based game where you land into an island. Again, it's discovery to start with. And then you have to explore your way to find or solve a mystery. Uh, you know, and that's the idea. And there we have about 50 plus islands. Uh, everything ranging from time tangle where you basically have uh, the history mixed up and you have to go and solve, uh, figure out which part belongs to uh, which era or an uh, island on Greek mythology which is telling you about you know, the Greek gods and you learn as you go and you're trying to solve up. And that's the idea. It was written by Jeff Kinney, the guy who was behind Diary of Wimpy Kids. Uh, he was used to work with the business and he still is our chief creative uh, director. So any new island that gets published has to go through his sign off, otherwise it doesn't. And uh, trust me when I say this, we have presented 150 plus islands to him and you know half the time they just get rejected so you know he's very particular about kids and you know how the 8 to 12 engage with it so we are you know very thankful for him because every island we release typically gets anywhere between 8 to 10 million views to start with so it's great for us and every island has an engagement time anywhere between 20 to 40 minutes depending on how fast or slow you are as a game player uh, so you know the engagement is high, uh, and that's because of that storytelling that is built in as part of the learning experience. Uh, and uh, uh, when I say learning experience, to give you the example of how that comes into reality, so recently we've launched a new island called Crisis Cavern. Now this island takes place in the uh, in uh, Yosemite National Park, and what we were doing was we said, okay, you have to escape the park. Uh, but how do we build the learning elements into it? So we are trying to teach kids about volcano, and that if you don't get in time out of the, you know, a particular cave, the volcano can blast. And as we are telling about volcano, we are also teaching them 
without they knowing that we are teaching them about you know uh, how the molten material gets in becomes a lava and you know how things happen we are trying to show them through video that you know what different kind of animals live in yosemite park and you know you have to go find an the antlers and you know solve mysteries as you go along so element of biology element of uh, physics and element of geology all mixed into a game um, is basically i think what helps us get into the schools helps us be on the teachers uh, radar and helps us because 60% of our play happens during school uh, and this is this is happening purely because you know teacher teaches something for 40 minutes has got 20 minutes free go play something and they you know depending on teacher and depending on what they like they may direct them to fun brain or uh, or pop tropica or some of our competitors were doing really well including cool math games or uh, brain pop uh, or right now the rising star uh, game called classcraft uh, I don't know if you've heard of this one, but it's in 20,000 plus schools already. And it's a subscription-based school subscribes. It's a very, you know, you, you uh, do collaboration uh, around the game um, and, uh, and uh, helping you learn the skills in a real-time real, real -time environment. Uh, so that's a very brief uh, sort of, you know, uh, journey into how we are looking at gamification of learning and you know how we are creating products around that uh, to help kids learn in a very engaging manner that's me brilliant thank you Abby, i have a question sure um <laughs> at a time when school budgets are in intensely reduced um and spending has become decentralized um, is it harder to fight for games-based learning? Um, do you think that um, it needs to be sold in more positively? So, uh, I mean, the way we look at uh, most of our products are free, by the way. So there's no, no charge. I think the challenge in this industry right now is the discovery. How do you get onto the teacher's radar that they, I mean, the many, many games out there, some of them, I would say, better than ours, but not discovered yet. So the biggest challenge is discovery, and that, for us, is, is where we focus on. And then, in terms of monetization, I feel if the game is engaging enough, we can monetize from direct-to-consumer. Parents will be happy to pay, uh, which is what most of our revenue comes from, is uh, most of the transactions, as we record, happen at home. So kids play the game in school, really like it, come home, say, I want to subscribe to this game, play more. So our monetization is less through schools, more at home. Uh, but at the same time, what we do for discoveries, uh, we're slightly fortunate. If I go back to on the logo slide, we've got a site called Teacher Vision, you will see, which reaches about 1.6 million teachers. So we use that as a platform to promote the product as well. Uh, you know, uh, and so we use our ecosystem and then family education, which is for parenting, we use that as the ecosystem to again reach parents. So we have started to build that ecosystem which has multiple touch points for our products. Awesome. Are you finding that that subscription model is bearing fruit? Is it, is it working? Uh, it's paying the bills. Uh, awesome. So we have a team of 70 people and if you take average cost, I mean, you can figure out we are profitable. So Excellent. it works for us. That's good news. I like that. Excellent. So, can I ask Danny's question? I'm allowed now. <laughs> Dan? Yes. Um, could you talk a little bit, a little bit, about... Um, I've got another presentation. Ab <laughs> about a thing that I know that we disagree on, um, which is um, how you feel levels of immersion increase um, learning. Yeah. Um, so we're in early days. Uh, <laughs> if we're specifically talking about virtual reality, we're in really early days, and everyone has to be quite patient. But I do believe that immersive media is a good learning tool, and I certainly believe that about VR. I made a, a documentary about quite a complex subject with a, a complex story, and I, I've seen people come out of that and, and want to learn more and retain a lot of information. And I think we're starting to see um, we're starting to see VR in schools like Google Expeditions 
um, did a program last year where they brought a million cardboards into schools and had um, educational programs with it, with teachers and the feedback was was really good that it worked very well and the kids really enjoyed it and actually the cardboard as a device is very playful and quite crafty you know you're, you've got them here in your in your playground um, space and you're customizing your own cardboard so we're at super early days but I think there's a great potential for um, for virtual reality and immersive media to tell stories but also to create interactive spaces where kids can can learn a wide range of subjects. Yeah, I wasn't able to come to DocFest. It was quite interesting to see the social space. I've not seen that before. I know that there's there's a couple of experiences that are going around schools at the moment, which are effectively a big bus, and the windows are blocked out, and it's kind of like you're all going on a magical adventure together. And I think that's much more interesting. I think mm. obscuring yourself from your peers and your teacher just I think it's fundamentally weird you mean the headset on your yeah. face I think I think there's probably more within the AR kind of or that mm. shared experience thing mm. well so I disagree with that because I think <laughs> because I think VR can be a communal experience because I think actually the journey for VR at the moment because it's not really a consumer product is context experience reflection so what happens is you discuss what's about to be seen, then you all share an experience, and then you reflect on the experience, which is like a lot of other teaching mechanisms in some way. Um, and it's, I think it's, like, there's a lot of talk at the moment about AR versus VR, and AR will eclipse VR. They're just different, very different things. Um, one is certainly much more accessible to other people looking over the shoulder of another person. Yeah. But I do believe that, that VR can be a really interesting, powerful communal experience when it's executed and facilitated well. You know, VR, actually, just like AI, is certainly a location-based experience at the moment for most people. You might have convinced me. <laughs> so, we're not gonna fight, I promise. Um, we're gonna open it up for questions from the audience. Um, I've got a question here, and then the lady there. Hi. Um, I just have a question about how you approach, um, across the panel, um, but specifically Amelia, I think, how do you approach setting and validating the learning outcomes you're going after with the games that you develop? Um, well, certainly all, all the games were developed with learning outcomes in mind, and we're really fortunate at the Science Museum because we've got an in-house audience research team, um, which I think is like five people at the moment. So um, they're dedicated to like, working alongside projects and then conducting evaluations at the end um, so that we kind of find out how much that's succeeded. Um, so learning outcomes are very much a part of our workflow. Do you use any sort of internal metrics to the games, so analytics within the games to follow that? Or is it just analysis kind of pre and post? Could you say a bit more so that... Um, um, well, do you build analytics into the games to help you study that from a, a quantitative <coughs> perspective? Or is it really just qualitative evalu evaluations before and after? Um, I believe that there's some in the games so far there's been some some kind of light analytics and you know in terms of um, when do people stop playing and dwell time and things like that yeah um, but it's definitely something I'd like to see more of in the games we've got in production there's a lady over there hi thanks um, it's Rebecca Perry from University of Nottingham um, and I'm working on a project at the moment um, where we're trying to introduce game playing into libraries. So it's really fascinating to see the potential. I really want to thank the panel, because I think that was a fantastic session, really inspiring. Um, and I'm sort of, it's a link question, really, because I'm very, very interested in the way in which we sort of frame our understanding of, of the impact or the value of games. I think we're, we're very, very kind of hemmed in by the current way that the world understands evidence and, uh, and, and how we collect data. Um, and I think we're too hemmed in in terms of education and that the kind of impact, um, cause effect, we can know about this, the, the value of this game by um, sort, of, sort of quite sort of narrow um, parameters, <coughs> ways of understanding. I, I'm really worried about it. I think 
also I'm really worried about going back to the very first contribution about you know if we stick to only we are measuring the impact of this on students' ability to attain in the national curriculum. Um, it, it, it's a short-term project and it won't work and we'll only ever say games don't really teach that any more effectively than doing a role play. So, and I'm not wanting to be negative at all because I actually think this, your, your work is suggesting really profoundly important ways of learning through games. We'd, but we shouldn't feel that we have to kind of tie, I don't think, feel we should have to sort of tie into the kind of government uh, education endowment fund uh, way of working, which is we do a baseline test, we do randomised control tests, we find out what, how young people um, achieve to a particular learning objective. It's much richer than that. It's so much richer than that, and we've got to get better at that. And I, obviously I'm kind of really interested in your responses. Um, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, the problem is um, people are trying to determine value for money all of the time and the cheapest thing to test are often the simplest and most crude. They don't uh, test well the sort of the, the effective nature of games, the deep learning, the change to attitudes. Mm. They essentially test whether you get the answer right or wrong or not. Um, and that, that's easy to test and misses most of the important lessons that we can learn from games. Um, but I think, I think it sort of reflects a wider problem in society um, where education has become a way of passing exams because it reflects on league tables. And so children are growing up with an attitude that if it's not critically important to pass the test, it doesn't matter. Um, and we see that in students as well. They literally are asking us, are we going to be assessed on this? If it's not going to be assessed, it's not important. And, and we can see that attitude sort of permeating all sorts of elements of society. It's kind of just in time life. If we, if we don't need it, if it's not gratuitous, if it's not sort of redundant, if it's not just life enhancing, um, then it kind of doesn't matter. We're, we're sort of focusing increasingly on things that can be easily measured for this particular point in time. Uh, and I do think it's a societal issue that is quite worrying long term. Mm -hmm. you know, and the joy about games is um, they sort of counter that because there is all sorts of unnecessary activity in there, all sorts of gratuitous hardness, all sorts of playfulness that doesn't need to occur but does. And, uh, and I would like to see more of that in life. Good. Wow. Okay. Mm. We are going to wrap up now because we have run out of time. There's a lot to talk about. Um, oh. <laughs> We will be outside. <laughs> I, I'm going to be next to the coffee. Um, thank you so much to the panel. Thank you so much for coming. Um, thank you, everybody.